Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman, Hanavi. I am a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunava in Thornton, Colorado. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open with prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King Lord, we just want to say that you love that we love you tonight, and that we appreciate uh, the time that we can get together. Lord, we're so blessed that we have the opportunity to share with one another, to encourage one another, to lift one another up in the Messiah, to pray for one another's needs, to, um, to continue to encourage one another, uh, to uh, run, their str- run the race uh, strongly, um, and not to give up the fight. Thank you, Lord, for this awesome responsibility of, um, of uh, living as a body, to, to uh, work with one another, to, to challenge one another, uh, to grow together, uh, to to love one another, to forgive one another. Um, Lord, we know that um, you have promised that uh, the world will know that we are your disciples if we have love one for another. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for the opportunity to, to be lights, uh, to be a city set on a hill, uh, to be uh, witnesses for your great name, and to honor your kingdom and to uh, showcase your holiness. Give us uh, patience, Lord, as we run this race, as we uh, press in, as we seek to be obedient to your words, as we um, uh, desire to wear the armor of God and to, to take a stand against evil and to resist sin and to say no to temptation. Forgive us where we fail you and uh, continue to give us a heart uh, after um, the truth. Uh, thank you, Lord, for this book of Galatians. Thank you for the content, the the relevant message. Uh, Lord, we need it now more than ever in the body, and we know that uh, just because we um, just because we open and we read uh, and we study, Lord, sometimes we just don't understand, and so we need your Holy Spirit to show us the meaning, to give us uh, the wisdom to walk it out, to do it, to to, to uh, put feet to our faith. Uh, bless us, Lord, and continue to raise us up. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory and all of these things, Amen. Let's date stamp our recording tonight is, um, wow, we're already into December. This is December 3rd, 2016, and this is week 48 of my Galatians study. Those of you who've been following with me for 48 weeks, wow, bravo. Uh, we haven't really been 
studying for 48 weeks consecutively, rather. We teach for 10 weeks, then we take a break for two weeks, then we uh, pick up again for another 10-week semester. So we're on week 48, which means we're closely approaching another semester break. Uh, I encourage you to go to my website at www.tetzetorah.com. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. And right from the home page, there are some links along the top. Click on the one that says Galatians Commentary, and you should be able to find the information needed to follow along with the study, either by PDF, uh, written notes, or you can follow along via the uh, podcast. Uh, I record each week's sermon, or each week's notes, each week's teaching, and upload it to iTunes. It's about an hour long, and then I also upload it to my website. So uh, usually a few days after the live recording, uh, you can expect to find it on the website. So um, we'd love to have you join us live each week via Skype, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Just adjust according to your time zone. But if you can't join us live via Skype, then uh, be sure to uh, pick us up on the uh, iTunes store. Uh, just Google search the, the, my name, uh, Hanavi, H-A-N-A-V-I-Y, in iTunes, or you can, uh, uh, I, I said Google search, but iTunes search, uh, the word Galatians, and you should be able to find my commentary. There aren't too many commentaries on Galatians in the iTunes store, and I can promise you there aren't too many Messianic versions. Uh, most of them are from a traditional Christian perspective. All right, that being said, let's uh, entertain some liturgy tonight. Uh, for those of you who are in the uh, in the live study, give me a moment. Let's bring up the screen. Uh, let's share my window here. Hopefully those of you who are in the live study tonight should be able to see my screen pulled up for you. I've got uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and you should be seeing... English on the right and Hebrew on the left. And the English that you're seeing there is the 1904, what is it, the night, not the 1904, 19 something or other, 1917 Jewish Publication Society. I think it's, I think that's it, the 1917 JPS Society, JPS version of the English there. So um, for the liturgy tonight, I'm going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I'm going to read uh, the first. Oh, I think I'll read the first nine verses, and then I want to skip down and start in verse uh, 20 and read uh, those last uh, six verses, 20 through 25. And that'll be the Hebrew, and then we'll jump over to some uh, some English and Greek as well from the Apostolic Scriptures. All right, let's read the, um, maybe we'll read uh, pony style this time. Pony meaning uh, I'll read English, then I'll jump straight over to the Hebrew, then I'll read English, then I'll jump straight into the Hebrew and the words I want you to hear, I want you to, to listen for, listen to all the verbs in this passage. Listen to all the ways that God is instructing Israel to enjoin uh, covenant faithfulness by keeping the commandments, by observing the commandments, to, by safeguarding to do it. In Hebrew, we've got this observe to do, uh, which uh, the Hebrew ends up being uh, shamaratav. Shemarata la'asot, two Hebrew words, shamar and asa. Shamar means to safeguard, uh, and asa means to literally do. So in the Hebrew mind, before you can actually asa, which is to do, you first have to safeguard it. You first have to um, shamar, that is to make whatever it is you want to do, you have to make it precious. You have to internalize it. You have to consider it. You have to think about it. You have to... Um, 
make it have value. You have to, to prioritize it, so to say. So first, it starts, I believe, in the heart, in the head, in the mind, uh, in the will, and then it works its way out into your members, into your lifestyle, into your, to, to, in other words, your faith, your faith um, gains feet, so to say. So that's in English, we don't always see that. It just simply says observe to do it. So it sounds like a kind of a redundancy. Observe to do it, eh? Isn't observing and doing? Aren't they both doing it? Well, not quite. Sometimes, like I said, uh, these words can get hidden in the uh, English version. So, uh, let's read 1 through 6. Um, it reads, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the ordinance, ordinances which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that you, I'm sorry, that ye might do them in the land, whither you go over to possess it. The Hebrew says, V'zot ha-mitzvah Verse 2, That thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, and all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Uh, the Hebrew says, Lema'an tira et Adonai Elohecha, I'm sorry, uh, I apologize, this Hebrew font's a little different than I'm used to reading, so uh, uh, it's a little hard for me to make out some of the words. Alright, verse 3. Here, therefore, O Israel, observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord, the, the Lord, the God of thy fathers, hath promised unto thee a land flowing with milk and honey. And the Hebrew says, "Vashamata, vashamata Yisrael, vashamarta laosot asher yitav lecha vashir tirbun maod." And now we start with the familiar section known as the Shema proper. Uh, those of you who pray the set time prayers at least twice a day are probably reciting this. Many uh, traditional and Orthodox Jews uh, have this section memorized. Uh, starting in verse 4, reading through verse 9, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord, is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohim, Adonai Echad. Verse 5, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Uh, I like that word, Ma'odecha. Um, the English says, with all thy might, but the word Ma'od, uh, can literally mean very, or translated as very, sometimes as in like tov ma'od, very good, uh, tov meaning good, ma'od meaning very. So we could say that God's asking us to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our veriness, right? Uh, and then verse 6, And these words which I command thee this day shall be upon thy heart. Verse 7, And thou shalt teach them diligently 
unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Uh, the Hebrew says, V'shinantam levanecha v'tiparatabam b'shivtaka b'vetaka v'lechtaka v'adrekov shafachov chumeka. And verse 8, And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be for frontlets between thy eyes. The Hebrew says, Uk sharatam le'ot al yadecha v'hayu le'totafot v'in e'necha. And uh, verse 9, um, uh, is the final verse of the Shema, at least the first of the three passages of the Shema out of Deuteronomy 6 here. Uh, verse 9 says, And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thy house and upon thy gates. Uh, now notice what I want to do is just in part of the liturgy is kind of teaching liturgy. Notice that God commands Israel not just to keep the commandments, not just to um, teach the commandments, but to fear the Lord our God. Fear the Lord and to keep all the statutes, right? We read in verse 2. And um, this word that I'm highlighting for those of you in the class in the, in the blue there that I highlighted with my mouse in verse 2 uh, that says, Shmor, Lishmor is, is how it's parged out, but the, the root word is Shamar. And that word is translated in the English as um, keep. But down here in verse 3, uh, God, Moshe tells Israel, Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it. And so we got Vashamata, Yisrael Vashamarta. Uh, observe to do that you may be well to you. Hear therefore, so here is Shema here, Shema, and then we have Shamar again, which is observe. So we got Vashamarta, observe it, but up here, Lishmor, uh, um, Shamar Shamor, uh, is to keep. So it seems like it's doubling up for many people who maybe read the English, but I think it's helpful to, to realize that God is really asking us to put it inside, to take these words and to make them of importance. And indeed, um, we will never ever uh, embark on the path of keeping God's ways if we don't first consider that they are worth keeping. That they are worth keeping. That they should be something that that's important to us. Um, therefore, we've got this idea, shamor, shamar, same root word, uh, um, shamar, shamor. Uh, got the same root word in the, in the Hebrew. So, um, when God tells us to v'shamarta la'asot, like we have in verse 3, and we translate it as observe to do it, um, notice that the doing part, the asa part, right, that part comes second, that's subsequent to the shamor or shamar, to safeguarding. That's how some of your uh, versions will say it, safeguard and do. And then, this is in accordance with what God says now in uh, verse 5, right? Notice that uh, keeping the commandments of God, I'm sorry, in verse 6, keeping the commands of God uh, that we read about in verse 6 and following, teaching them diligently to our children, talking to them when we sit down, walking by the way, lies down, rising up. All of those things, binding them as a sign upon our hands and forehead. All of those things come after what we read in verse 5 and 6, which are really the 
the heart, pun intended, of the passage. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's an internal matter first. With all thy soul, with all thy might. Love God. Start, love for God starts on the inside. It starts with God changing our heart, God opening our heart, God opening our ears, God softening our heart, God engaging the mind, God, uh, um, uh, uh, how do we say, God laying hold of the, the will of a man. Uh, I really say it this way, that, that Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, always will be. And that's why Moshe tells us these words which I command thee today shall be upon your heart. And the reason I'm bringing all of this out in the liturgy is because we're going to get some mileage out of this when we turn to the book of Galatians study tonight, chapter 2, verses uh, 15 and 16 that we're reading. We're going to see how Israel really failed to allow God's Holy Spirit to write the words of God on the heart. They really had begun to try to micromanage the uh, the commandments of God and to um, set them on a plane that they weren't really intended to do uh, to be first. So uh, let's read, jump down now real quick uh, to verse 20 and read through 20 through 25 in the, in the Hebrew as well. Uh, the English reads, When thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What meaneth the testimonies and the statutes and the ordinances which the Lord our God hath commanded you? And verse 21, Then thou shalt say unto thy son, We were Pharaoh's bondsmen in Egypt. Slaves is what Moshe is saying there. We were uh, Pharaoh's uh, slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. That's the slaves, right? We were Eved, we were servants. Avadim, Chayinu Lefaro, Bemitraim, Vayotzi Enu Adonai, Mimitraim, Beyad Chazaka. Verse 22. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon all his house before our eyes. Vayitain Adonai Otot. Muftim v'gedolim v'ha'v'ra'im b'mitra'im yes b'mitra'im b'faro l'chol beito la'inenu verse 23 and he brought us out from thence notice what Moshe is teaching to the people he brought us out from thence right from Egypt he delivered us that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore unto our fathers I like to say it this way God brought us out in order to bring us in. Makes sense? He didn't just deliver us in order to leave us on our own, to wander, fend for ourselves, wander around the desert, fend for ourselves, to figure it out on our own. No, he had a plan. He brought us out of Egypt and slavery in order to bring us in to the land that he promised our forefathers. So, uh, verse 23 in the Hebrew, and, and the Hebrew um, I'm sorry, yes, V'otanu, Hotzim Misham Lash Lamaan Havi Otanu Latet Lanu et Haaretz Asher Nishbala Avotenu. And then verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. I like the sequence here. He brought us out of Egypt, brought to, in order to bring us into the land, and then. Moshe is just simply describing that they stopped at Sinai first to receive the words. Verse 24. He commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it 
is this day. Verse 24. Um, I'm sorry. And then linking verse 24 to 25, right? God commanded us to do these statutes to fear the Lord our God. Linking fear of the Lord, right? First, fear of the Lord with, now verse 25, observing to do. We got this thing going on in Hebrew again. Observing to do. Observing to do. And it's the same sequence that we saw up up above in verse 3 and 4, whatever. It's shamar to asa. Shamar to asa. Shamar comes first, observing part, or safeguarding, really. And then asa comes next. And it shall be righteousness unto us if we observe to do all this commandment before the, before the Lord our God, as he hath commanded us. Uh, the Hebrew says, Utsedakah tihelanu, right? Tzedakah is this idea of righteousness. Utsedakah tihelanu ki nishmor la'asot. There's that doubling of verbs again, right? Shamar and asa. Nishmor la'asot et kol ha-mitzvah hazot le uh, then we got Lifne Adonai Elohinu Ka'asher Tzivanu. So the point I'm trying to really highlight by bringing this out of the Hebrew and, and, and uh, showcasing this uh, before we even get started with the study is because as we move into studying through the book of Galatians, it's helpful for us to understand, at least to try as best as possible to peel back the pages of history and to get into the socio-religious mindset of the people that were receiving the words that Paul was giving via the letter of Galatians. What mind frame did the people of Israel have 2,000 years ago? I can tell you right now, it wasn't Rabbinic Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism didn't come along till say, 200 uh, AD, 200 AD uh, after the Council of Yavne when the Jewish people reconvened after the destruction of the temple and met to basically reconstitute Judaism because it had fallen apart. It was, it was going to ruin. And if, if, if uh, Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the Prince, otherwise known as just Rabbi, affectionately known as Rabbi, if he had not really uh, began to, to, say, codify the Mishnah and to collect the sayings of the fathers and really set down and, and, and gets, bring some sensibility and since an order to Judaism back then, then perhaps we wouldn't even have rabbinic Judaism today. So, uh, or a sense of Judaism, we wouldn't have a viable Judaism today because it had really begun to die out. It, it, it because of all the persecution, because of the wars, because of the destruction of the temple, uh, because of scattering of the Jewish people under pains of death from Jerusalem, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's rabbinic Judaism. But that's kind of a, a Johnny-come-lately. That's, that's not really biblical Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism and biblical Judaism, they resemble one another, but they're not really quite the same thing. Instead, Paul's Judaism, in Paul's day, that was not rabbinic Judaism. That's First Temple Judaism that we're reading about in the, in, in the book of Galatians. And that's the Judaism that we want to uncover. So it's, it's closer in semblance to the Judaism that we read about in the Bible here in, 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 in the, what Christians call the Old Testament. It's better to, for us to kind of get into that mindset. How did the people think then? They didn't really have this stacking on of, of rabbis' rulings upon rabbis' rulings, you know, the, uh, the traditions of the fathers, uh, the, 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 um, uh, the uh, what do we call the, 
the traditions, the, uh, the fences that we call that are built up around Torah. They didn't have a lot of that going on yet. I mean, there's some. But the point I'm trying to make is as we get into the mindset of the book of Galatians, let's see if we can try and figure out what exactly were they hoping on? What were they banking on? What were they, where do they think they were going to gain a righteousness? Notice that um, Moshe gives us kind of a hint. He says, it will be righteousness unto us if we observe to do all this commandment. So this is kind of this righteousness that Moshe is describing. And we're going to have to figure out, uh, do our best to uncover the truth behind what is this righteousness that Moshe is talking about. Is it behavioral? Is it forensic? Is it is it a coin with two sides, right? A beginning and an end point that's uh, all-encompassing? Let's turn now to our liturgy from the book of Galatians and see if we can tie this together. Paul is having this discussion with Peter in Galatians chapter 2, and that's where we're studying for tonight, so that's why I'm reading this liturgy. This is an important section of the book because it begins to show Paul's um, central argument for the Galatian congregations in that they're they're hoping to gain covenant membership through uh, what Paul calls the works of the law. And it becomes our responsibility as 21st century Bible students to, um, to decipher this term, works of the law. It's kind of cryptic. Uh, admittedly, uh, it has not been uh, well uh, documented in history. It doesn't even show up in extra-biblical writings. Uh, so it's very difficult uh, to, kind, to, to exactly put our finger on what this term means. So we have to kind of make some best guesses based on... Uh, historical research into this area. So let's read the verses and see what we can make of them. Let's start in verse 11, back up just a bit to get the context. But when Cephas, we say in English Cephas, came to Antioch, that's Peter, right? Verse 11, I oppose him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. This is the ESV, by the way. Um, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, this is Paul, he said, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And we talked about that last week and the week prior, really, get those two recordings weeks of 46 and 47 uh, kind of go together. Then we turn to what some commentaries uh, like to label kind of the heart of the argument, starting in verse 16. And we're just going to read 16 to 17 tonight, and that's where we're going to park our commentary. Paul says to Peter, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Verse 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of law, because by works of law no one will be justified. Okay, uh, so we got this Paul telling us how Jews are to uh, accurately, faithfully, uh, definitively be justified in God's courtroom. Let's turn now to the Greek uh, and um, peel back some of the, uh, the original language, the meaning there. Uh, let's see, let's drop down to the interlinear chapters. Those of you who are in the study with me tonight who are listening via Skype, I've got BibleHub.com pulled up on the screen, and I encourage you, uh, when you get a chance, check it out. It's a great site. It's got the English, it's got the Greek, it's got the 
what I call the parsings or the um, the morphology uh, below the, the the English there, where you can tell which words are adjectives, adverbs, prepositions, uh, and then you can get a sense of uh, what the genitive is. Um, uh, you can get a sense of what uh, uh, moods and tenses the verbs are in aorist, indicative, active, uh, what persons are in first, second, third person, blah, blah, blah. So let's scroll down to uh, verse 11 and pick it up in the Greek. And I'm just going to be reading the black words here right in the middle. Uh, if you care to try and follow along in the Greek and you can't read the Greek script, uh, try looking at the... Um, up here just above the black, there's some transliteration. Uh, if, if you can make that out, right, using Latin script. Okay, the Greek says, Hati de elfein kephas es antiochian kata prosopon, prosopon auto antasein hati kategonosmanos en, and verse 12 says, Protu gar elfein tinas apo Jacobu metaton elf, I'm sorry, ethnon, Sunestian, hati de elf, elf, I'll try that again, elfon, hupastelen kai aforitsin hutan, Fobuminos tus ekperitomes, starting in verse 13 now. Kai, uh, what is that? Sunua pekristen, auto kai hoi loipoi yudaioi, hasti de kai barnabas suna pekte auton te hupakrise. Verse 14, al hati edon hati uk ortabudusin prostein alethian, tu yuangeliu apon to kefa. In prosten panton e su yudaios huparkon ethnicos kai uk yudaikos zespota ethne anankazes yudaitzein. Starting in verse 15. Hemes fuse yudaioi kai uk ex ethnon hamartaloi. Verse 16. Uh, let me scroll up a bit here. Uh, verse 16 starts out. Edates de hati u dikai utai. Anthropos, anthropo, yes, anthropos, ex ergonamu in media pistios Christu Jesu, caihemes es Christon Jesu epistusen, epistusamen, hina de caiothomen ex pistios Christu, cae ex ergonamu hati ex ergonamu u, de caiothesatai pasasarx. And the reason I really uh, want to bring the Greek to our attention is there, there are some um, there are some words that Paul uses multiple times. And we see this in the English as well, but it's helpful to know what the Greek is behind these words. Picking on verse 15 and uh, actually picking on verse 16. Uh, 16 says kind of woodenly, knowing nevertheless that not justified, not is justified a man by works of the law. And this phrase is justified is the Greek word dikaiutai. And we've talked about how that this, the, the original Greek word, if I click on the link in the Bible Hub site, the original Greek word is dekaiao. And dekaiao is a verb that carries a sense of make righteous, defend the cause of righteousness, or to justify, uh, to, to plead for the righteousness, um, to acquit, to justify, hence to regard as righteous. And the, the, the important point we want to remember is that it's God who has the final say. 
It's God who can declare a man justified or righteous in his sight. Now recall what Moshe said in Deuteronomy 6.25 a moment ago. Moshe said that these commandments will be our righteousness if we do them. Right? And the Hebrew word was uh, tzedakah or tzedakah. So we got this idea of righteousness that's introduced also in the Torah of Moshe. And now Paul's picking up on this idea. So the Greek word uh, dikai'o uh, is really the translation of the Hebrew tzedakah. And then Paul uses this word, uh, this cognate, uh, or this word or a cognate, dikai'o. He uses it three times in this verse, in verse 16. A man is not uh, dikai'o or dikai'utai is how it's parsed out. It's not justified, right? It's a verb, and it's a present, indicative, middle, or passive, third-person, singular verb. Dikai'utai. Uh, dikai'utai, I'm sorry. Um, and this person is not justified by the ergonamu, the works of the law. And then Paul goes on to say, um, a little further on down in the verse, that we might be justified by faith. Dikai'uthomen, in here, right here. Uh, Dikaiothomen is the same root word, shares the same root, root word as the one we just read before, uh, dikaio. So, uh, be justified is how it's translated. Notice this time it's it's in the future, right? It's a it's a verb, aorist subjunctive passive. I'm sorry, I didn't say I don't mean to say future. It's not future yet. We're going to find that here in a moment. So we've got the aorist subjunctive passive aorist having this sense of a verb that has happened. Uh, not a not a um, not a not a perfect tense verb, but a but an aorist subjunctive, aorist tense, and it's passive. It's something that's happening to us. It's first person plural. We might be, and then we have the same Greek word shows up one more time in the same verse, dikaiothesitai, uh, dikaiothesitai, and this time it's in the future. It's a verb that's in the future indicative passive third person singular verb. We will be justified. So interesting that Paul uses this word, same root word, Strong's number 1344, but he uses it kind of three different ways. A man is not justified, present indicative, that we might be justified, era subjunctive, so that we will be justified, future indicative. And it's the same Greek word, same root word, the kaiao. So, the point of Paul's uh, letter here uh, is obviously important enough for him to repeat the same Greek word three times, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. What does this mean to be justified? And more importantly, how is a man justified? Now, before I get ahead of myself, I just want to remind you again that the, uh, uh, the, the sense of justification was already something that the first century Jews were wrestling with as well. How is a person justified? Is it by maybe method A, or perhaps is there a different method? Paul's going to come out and tell us straightforward that it's not by the, the prevailing method that a person is justified. It's not by the uh, traditional uh, uh, standard view that the Judaisms of his day were uh, imagining it to be. And really the question for us on the table of discussion is, is that method Torah observance? Is it legalism? Is it simply keeping the commandments? Is that what they were hoping, putting their trust in? Were they really hoping that if they kept the commandments perfectly, that God would justify them, that God would count them as uh, uh, tzaddik, as tzedakah, as righteous, like we read about in Deuteronomy 6.25? In fact, is that what Paul is combating? 
Is he telling the Jewish people to stop trying to keep Torah to be saved, viz. forensically justified, or is he really hinting at a different method of justification? And I think, I, I really think that there's something slightly different going on. I don't think it's basic, generic Torah observance that the Jewish people were trying to leverage in hopes of getting God's stamp of approval called justification. So, with that kind of teaser, let's turn to my commentary and pick up our reading where we left off last week. Um, let's see. We are... Uh, let's see. Okay. We are near the bottom of page 96. We just read this long paragraph uh, describing uh, Paul's uh, um, explanation of works of the law. And um, I think... Uh, first, let me t- just to back up for a split second, let me let me start from um, the uh, let's see, let's start from right here about the middle of the paragraph. I think, according to my commentary, I say that we can translate this phrase: "A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ." Right? We read that in we just read that here in, in uh, Galatians two sixteen. I think when Paul says that a person, right, anthropos in the Greek, a person, a man, literally, a person is not justified by works of the law, by ergo namu, but by, uh, but through faith in Jesus Christ. I think what Paul's really saying is that a person is not saved by becoming a Jew and then subsequently embracing Torah. And I use that kind of all-encompassing paraphrase to describe this, what I'd called last week, a coin with two sides. First side of the coin chiefly being the identity that a person recognizes that he has. Either he got this identity from birth, meaning he was born Jewish, or he acquired this identity later on in life as he took on the um, uh, the ceremony of the proselyte and changed his ethnic status to one of, of a Jew in the first century, a legally recognized Jew. So I think that that's the first side of the coin that a person uh, had to and must um, uh, contend with to be counted as a covenant member. Now, of course, I don't think that that's going to give them genuine covenant membership in God's sight. But from their limited self-definition of covenant membership and self-understanding, from the uh, the nationalistic perspective that I believe Israel carried in that day, 2,000 years ago, I think that's the, the primary um, uh, uh, ingredient that, uh, that secured what they believed was genuine covenant membership. And it is from that covenant membership that Torah obedience can be uh, planted. It is, it is from the foundation of Jewish identity that that um, Torah observance can then find its home. That it can it can subsequently uh, become an, an everyday part of the covenant members' uh, responsibility to the covenant. So here's what I said in my commentary. We could translate the whole phrase thusly: "Quote, a man is not justified by his ethnic-driven identity, whether natural or achieved, nor by his subsequent Jewish." I'm sorry, nor by his subsequent social possession and maintenance of Torah. In other words, a man is not justified by being Jewish and along with keeping the Torah. But, and here's where they have this contrast, right? The contrastive word but. But by faith in Jesus Christ, end quote. So, we already know as 21st century Christians that we, we obviously we can't be saved, 
uh, right? Justified dikaiosune or dikaios, dikaios. Uh, it's that same word group again. We know from our 21st century hindsight looking at this passage, we know obviously that Paul is going to disagree with any sort of meritorious uh, keeping of the Torah for the purpose of trying to enact God's um, acquittal to, to try and gain the approval from the Almighty where he might declare us dikaiosune or, or uh, justify dikaio. God is not going to declare us forensically righteous, i.e. saved, just because of the things that we do. And we know that that's true. In other words, there's no amount of good deeds that we can do. But I don't even think that that's the central point of Paul's letter here. Even as true as that is theologically, I don't think that that is to start the whole argument on the proper footing. I think that's the one step um, that's missing the first step. I really think as we study through Paul's writings that the initial step of becoming righteous, again, I'm going to belabor this point because I've got, a, I've got an agenda that I'm trying to uh, establish here. I really think that Paul's trying to combat the nationalism that was present in his day, the idea that one is brought into the covenant with Israel, between Israel and God, that, that a person is brought into the covenant merely because they have been born into a Jewish household, that they have basically been born with covenant membership. And based on that idea, based on that misunderstanding of covenant membership, uh, the Jewish person essentially did not have to work or earn his way into the covenant at all. You see my point? It was a kind of a blindness. It was a blindness that was um, that was uh, centered on this nationalism, this this ethnocentric identity, this belonging to a people group, kind of passively, where a person uh, essentially felt that uh, they didn't have to really earn their way in. They didn't have to do anything to get in, but but once they once they realized that they were already in at birth, once they realized that they had covenant membership merely because they were Israelites, once that was, was uh, actualized, then there was this responsibility to keep themselves from idolatry, from uh, uh, you know remorseless uh, disobedience, from, from blatant uh, violation of commandments, etc., etc. In other words, the Torah was brought into the picture only after a person realized that he was a, a covenant member. The Torah did then in this viewpoint that I'm describing, the Torah did not grant them covenant membership. In other words, they didn't have to work their way into covenant membership by keeping the Torah. Instead, they simply demonstrated their loyalty to the covenant by keeping the Torah, and they essentially maintained their position as covenant members by keeping the Torah, by keeping away from idolatry, by by loving the Lord uh, with their actions, so to say. They demonstrated love by doing, right? And I think this is a very important distinction in our discussions. So let's keep reading my commentary and see how far we can get. I never really know how far I'm going to get in my, in my study. <laughs> Just kind of uh, dive in and, and see how far we can go. Starting near the bottom of page 96, I read, I, I wrote, quote, However well-meaning I might be in my assessment of these two verses, verse 15, uh, 15 and 16, I could be wrong, right? And I've heard other views. I've heard some people say that what Paul is combating is, and I, is the idea that the Jewish people of the first century were trying to earn their way into heaven, i.e. be saved by keeping the commandments. That's one view I've heard. Another view I've heard is that the Jewish people were trying to earn salvation, viz. covenant membership, by keeping the sayings of the fathers. In other words, keeping the traditions, keeping the, the Talmud, the Mishnah. Um, I've heard that before. 
Uh, I've heard that the Jewish people were trying to be saved by um, keeping the the sacrifices or something like that. Generally speaking, the 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 the, the viewpoint that is most popular in Christian circles today is that the Jewish people of the first century were hoping that God would recognize their works and save them based on their works. So they were they were kind of banking on a works-driven righteousness, a, a, a merit theology, so to say, if I can give a theological name to it. And there are manifold reasons why I reject that view, one of them being that history doesn't seem to uh, give us that viewpoint. If you go back through, say, the, 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 the rabbinic writings themselves, the mission of the Gemara, uh, some of the, uh, the older writings, that we don't lend, it doesn't lend itself to the view that the Jewish people were trying to earn their salvation by works. Instead, there's more of this nationalism that I see going on, this idea that they were already the, the elite people of God, they were the elect they were the chosen people of God, and so essentially they were blinded by their, their ethnicity. They were blinded by their own nationalism. They were blinded by the sense of God uh, graciously choosing them from all the other people groups of the earth, which, if you listen to the verbiage, has its roots in truth, right? God really did elect Israel. God really did choose Israel alone as the, as the sole uh, inheritors of, of the covenant package that he was establishing with Papa Abraham. But... It doesn't mean that Israel alone would uh, enjoy this special favor because we know that God was going to be grafting the Gentiles in via faith in Messiah. So it really gets kind of it's really kind of convoluted to 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 uh, peel back the pages of history. It's kind of difficult, I should say, not convoluted. It's difficult to see this uh, because we've got two thousand years of Christian bias telling us that the Jewish people of the first century of Paul's day were trying to earn their way into heaven by keeping the Torah. And there's a practical uh, reality to that. A practical uh, what should I say? A, a practical objection to labeling the Jewish people as stone-cold legalists, because if one were to read the Torah, then one would find that there's no way to practically enjoin oneself upon every single commandment, uh, particularly because every single commandment is not written for every single person. There are commandments for men, commandments for women, commandments for kings, commandments for priests, commandments that are to be done if you're in the land, commandments that are to be done um, if you're close to the temple, uh, commandments that are to be done once a year, commandments that are to be done multiple times a year, when essentially, as you're uh, ostensibly walking out the Torah, when would God grant you the, the label righteous? Right? Is it when you first start keeping Torah? Is it as you're working your way towards uh, keeping Torah You know, day by day, month by month, year by year? Is it when you die? At what point does God label you righteous? Dikaiusune, right? So I think there's there's a, a, um, logistic problems with labeling the, the the Jews of the first century as kind of what I call stone cold uh, works theology uh, uh, people. Uh, where they just thought in this simplistic ladder to heaven, where they they could work their way into heaven by by keeping the commandments. Exactly which commandments were they supposed to keep? Um, so let's discuss this. I wish to provide two of my favorite Bible commentators' remarks for secondary consideration. First, let's look at Tim Hague's commentary to Galatians, which, in my understanding, has been is indispensable for my own personal understanding of Paul's first-century Judaisms. And let's see what Tim has to say. Here's what Hig says about these two verses, as I quote from his uh, Galatians commentary, which is available on his website. 
at TorahResource.com. This is from page 70, if you look at footnote number 79. Tim Hague says, uh, quote, uh, speaking of verse 15 and 16, the question then is, what will appeal to God in terms of declaring someone who is unrighteous in his eyes as righteous? For a given sect to come to the conclusion that their group and their group alone would be judged by God as righteous, and then to require conformity to man-made rules in order to enter the sect, uh, to enter the sect, this was the kind of thing that Paul was combating. For never did inclusion in any group afford one the status of righteous. Rather, righteousness was to be found in another, in the Messiah. So Paul's going to have this differing perspective, obviously. Rather, uh, Heg goes on to say, rather righteousness, I'm sorry, uh, and it is only those to whom his righteousness, speaking of God, his righteousness is applied that may be assured of standing in the day of judgment and being welcomed into the presence of God as righteous. Heg goes on to say, for Paul, the crux text relating this truth was Genesis 15:6, in which Abraham himself did not, quote, earn righteousness. He did not, did not quote, unquote, earn righteousness. Rather, Abraham had it accredited to him through faith. Right, that's Genesis 15:6. Heg says, Abraham stood as the paradigm for righteousness. Obviously, Paul picks up on this. Heg says, and that uh, Abraham gained his status of righteousness before he was ever circumcised. Thus, circumcision itself became a seal of his righteousness, not the means of it. <clears throat> so, Heg goes on to uh, lay the gauntlet down. And what does Heg go on to uh, 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 conclude? One hardly thinks that Peter or those who came from James, including James himself, have forgotten this fundamental truth, right? James was a believer, and Peter was a believer. So it's not that Peter and James were suddenly uh, reverting back to some former uh, belief system where they were hoping that their uh, their works or their ethnicity would, would grant them righteousness, or something like that. Haig goes on to say, note well the plural we, right? We throughout this verse in the next. But the strength of tradition... Heg goes on to say, the strength of tradition in Paul's day, Jewish tradition, had clouded their perspective so that they apparently could not see how their insistence, right, these men from James, their insistence, listen carefully to this part, these men from James insisted that the Gentiles become proselytes. This insistence, uh, Heg goes on to highlight, was actually a denial of this foundational truth. The foundational truth that we just read about, that, that, that God declared Abraham righteous by faith. And the insistence that Gentiles become Jews in order to be counted as uh, covenant members in Israel uh, kind of bypassed that foundational truth of um, salvation by faith. Notice that uh, Haig concludes by saying, for they were, right, these men from James, which was the standard uh, way of thinking in Paul's day, they were insisting that the Gentiles become proselytes in order to enjoy the covenant fellowship, which was actually already theirs through faith in Yeshua. End quote. All right, so Haig highlights this idea 
that the Christian commentaries have probably missed. And it's the idea that the, the Judaisms of Paul's day were not really insisting that they themselves keep Torah to be covenant members, viz. saved, nor were the Judaisms of Paul's days insisting that the Gentiles keep Torah in order to be saved. It wasn't this works righteousness the way the church describes it today. You need to keep Torah in order to be saved. You need to do the works of the law in order to be counted as dikaiusunate, in order to be counted as tzedakah, in order to be counted as righteous. It wasn't that at all. Really, what Hegg's trying to highlight is that the Judaisms of Paul's day were where they themselves were believing that their ethnicity uh, counted as righteous before God, and therefore their insistence on Torah observance was in order to demonstrate or to vindicate or to highlight and showcase and to maintain the righteousness that they felt they already had as Jewish people, as Jewish Israelites. And therefore, the um, the men from James were basically insisting that the Gentiles had no place in Jewish Israel as Gentiles. See my point? So the, the, the hinge, the entry point, the fulcrum, uh, the, the the entry point into covenant membership was not works of the law as described by merit theology. Rather, the entry point into covenant membership from their perspective was Jewish identity. And works of the law is a description given to Jewish identity, but it also includes Torah observance. So uh, we have to, in my opinion, it's, it, I think it's kind of crucial to uh, articulate it this way. I, again, not that... That if we uh, for trying to say that uh, keeping the, the, the that if in fact the Jewish people were believing that keeping the Torah would save them, uh, not that that position is accurate. We know that that's wrong too, and so we can teach that theologically, but I don't th- I don't think it's historically accurate. All right, let's keep reading. Uh, James D. G. Dunn, in my opinion, has also been very indispensable uh, in my understanding. Uh, he's done a, a well-respected uh, job on. Um, uh, on researching these facts, along with uh, E.P. Sanders. So let's pick up Dunn's comments, and I think we're probably going to uh, finish the commentary tonight with Dunn's comments, because these are kind of long. So let's read uh, something from Dunn. Quote, First then, this is Dunn speaking, First then, how did Paul mean to be understood uh, by his sudden and repeated talk of being justified? Remember? Justified shows up three times in verse 16 alone. If you look at the uh, English, let me just pull that up real quick. Uh, let's pull up the ESV for a split second. Um, in verse 16, uh, Paul says, uh, Yet we know that a person is not justified, there's one, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, there's the second use, by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Three times. And it sounds like it's a kind of a, a an unnecessary repetition, a sort of redundancy uh, in Paul. I mean, why is he saying the same thing three times? Why couldn't he just make his point once? By using it once, we already looked at the Greek, and we know that it's three, at least three different uh, tenses in the Greek. So, is there something to be said of the of the verb tenses? Is there something to be said of Paul's repetition? Uh, I said that it could be just basic repetition. It could be tautology. Uh, it could be kind of a teaching technique where you say the same thing uh, over and over again, kind of in poetic fashion, like we read about in the Psalms quite often. 
God is good, uh, you know, give thanks to the Lord, he is good, his kindness endures forever, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for he created the earth, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, etc. So we keep saying this repetitious phrase, right, Key, uh, give thanks to the Lord. Is that what Paul's doing in this verse? Why is he using dikaiosune, or, or some parsing of that three times? Let's see what Dunn has to say. What is to be made of the sudden and repeated talk of being justified? This is Dunn's thoughts. Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, in order that we might be justified by faith in Christ, by works of law shall no flesh be justified. Right? Three times justified. The format of his words, Dunn says, shows that he is appealing to an accepted view of Jewish Christians. Notice Paul uses the, uh, the, the, the uh, third person uh, uh, plural, we. We who are Jews, I'm sorry, not third person, uh, we who are Jews. So Paul includes himself in that description, we who are Jews, know, that's what Dunn's trying to point out, indeed, as already noted, Dunn says, Paul is probably at this point still recalling, if not actually repeating, what he, uh, what it was he said to Peter at Antioch. Not only so, but his wording shows that he's actually appealing to Jewish sensibilities, right? We may say even to Jewish prejudices, because Paul says we are Jews by nature, not sinners of the Gentiles. Dunn thinks that this is Paul's words, whereas Haig thinks that where Paul says we're Jews by nature, not Gentile sinners, Haig thinks that those are the words not of Paul, but rather Paul's re- repeating the, the kind of the, the, the claim of the, uh, the Judaizers, the influencers, those men from James. In other words, they're not really Paul's sentiments. They're just Paul kind of mocking them by repeating their phrase in the ears of Peter in order to shock Peter back into some sensibility. Let's keep reading. This understanding of being justified in Paul, according to Dunn, is thus... Evidently, something that Jewish, uh, something which belongs to Jews, it's something Jewish, is something which belongs to Jews by nature, it's something which distinguishes them from Gentile sinners, according to Dunn. But this is covenant language, the language of those conscious that they have been chosen as a people by God and separated from the surrounding nations, right? The Jewish people of Paul's day had this self-identification. They knew they were chosen. They knew they were elect. They knew they were separate and 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 uh, unique. Moreover, Dunn says, those from whom the covenant people are thus separated, right? The Jewish people were separated from someone. They are described not only as Gentiles, but as sinners. So we got kind of two designations, not just sinners, I'm sorry, not just Gentiles, but as Gentile sinners. Here too, Dunn says, we have the language which stems from Israel's consciousness of election. Gentile sinners, right? Dunn goes on to say, the Gentiles are sinners precisely insofar as they neither know nor keep the law given by God to Israel. You understand my point? Understand Dunn's point? They're sinners because they are uh, violators of the law, right? We know that. <coughs> excuse me. We know that to violate the Torah is to um, be counted as a sinner. Sin is the violation of Torah. We, in fact, read that in the Apostolic Scriptures themselves. So, from the Jewish perspective, their self-understanding was that because these Gentiles neither had nor kept the Torah of God, they were therefore sinners. Dunn goes on to say, Paul therefore prefaces 
his first mention of being justified in his in verse 16. He prefaces his first mention of being justified with a deliberate appeal to the standard Jewish belief shared also by his uh, fellow Jewish Christians, which was that Jews as a race are God's covenant people. Almost certainly then, speaking of Paul, his concept of righteousness, and listen very carefully, people, his concept of righteousness is both noun and verb, which is to be made or counted righteous, to be justified right, we got righteousness in two forms, verb and noun. Albeit in this verb, all three are, are, are verbs. Dunn goes on to say that Paul's concept of righteousness, both noun and verb, is thoroughly Jewish also. It is thoroughly Jewish, with the same strong covenant overtones, the sort of usage we find particularly in the Psalms and Second Isaiah, where God's righteousness is precisely God's covenant faithfulness, his saving power and love for his people Israel. God's justification, uh, 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 Dunn goes on to say, is God's recognition of Israel as his people, his verdict in favor of Israel on grounds of his covenant with Israel. So basically God justifies Israel because God recognizes that there is only one elect. There is only one people group that God has chosen among all the people groups of the earth. And indeed, this Jewish self-understanding of their election does form the foundation of their misunderstanding of how they can be passively uh, counted as righteous by God simply because they were Jewish Israelites. See my point? So, the the, 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 the big distinction I think that, that Dunn is highlighting for us that's uh, markedly different than, say, uh, the traditional uh, Christian perspective on, on Paul's book to the letter to the Galatians, is that Dunn is highlighting the fact that the Jewish people in Paul's day actualized their election and then um, assumed from a passive perspective that their election guaranteed them a place in the world to come, a place in heaven, a place on God's uh, bench of righteousness, merely because God had elected them as a people group. So there was this kind of um, a, a passive salvation going on, a, a, um, a sense of belonging to God's people group in the sense that we're in merely because we're the elect. We're in, and we're going to make it into heaven simply because God brought us in automatically. Uh, we don't really have to do anything at all. There's no active duty to pursue righteousness or to, or to pursue faith or to pursue uh, uh, genuine faithfulness or anything like that. Really, it's, it, it's centered primarily on the fact that we are nationally recognized as the single sole uh, uh, recipients of God's grace. And that's kind of where the whole thing started. So, Dunn is highlighting this. Uh, let's see if we can... Let me see how far we can get in Dunn. Yeah, I think... I think we're not going to be able to finish Done tonight because I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to give you too much to chew on. I just want to start down this path of challenging uh, my listeners and the readers of my commentary with this notion: when you read your standard traditional Christian commentary that you can pick up from any basic bookstore, you're primarily going to hear this view. And, and let me tell you, let me kind of tip my cards to you and show you why I'm making it such a big deal in my own commentaries to kind of break with the traditional view of Christian theology that the Jewish people were trying to earn their way through their works. Here's why I think that's a bad path to go down um, uh, and a bad conclusion to come to when you're reading Paul. 
Traditionally, Christians think that the Jews of Paul's day and the Jews of today were trying to keep Torah in order to be counted as uh, forensically righteous, viz. saved. And in this perspective, uh, the, Jew, the, the Christians of today interpret Paul's uh, letter to Galatians as Paul warning not only the Jews from the futility of trying to keep the Torah to be saved, the impossibility of it, but also Paul seems to have to warn the Gentiles from trying to adopt this Jewish perspective of merit theology. So that Paul has to also warn the Gentiles away from trying to keep Torah in order to be saved as well. So it's got this kind of legalism that's recognized by the Christian church as keeping the Torah. And because Paul neatly, supposedly, neatly describes legalism as keeping the Torah, Paul can neatly um, caution anyone from trying to keep the Torah to become saved. And in Paul's warning, there is a, an application, and the application is this. Because no one can keep the Torah to become saved, and because only faith in Jesus will save you, then trying to keep the Torah becomes a lesson in, in futility. It becomes, um, it becomes a, a legalistic pursuit of, of commandment keeping, and therefore it needs to be rejected altogether. One, therefore, as a Christian, needs to abandon his pursuit of keeping Torah for any purpose. You see my point? In the traditional Christian application of the passages that we're reading right now, Paul tells us that people can't be saved by keeping the Torah. And because people can't be saved by keeping the Torah, then what use is the Torah? It needs to be thrown out. It has become a useless endeavor in the life of a Christian. It has become a worthless uh, pursuit in the eyes of God. It has become something that is old, outmoded, out. Um, uh, outdated, um, worthless to try and uh, pursue, and therefore essentially any sense of keeping the Torah for any reason, whether to earn God's salvation or to earn God's favor or to earn God's grace or to get God's attention, uh, to gain brownie points before God, any of that, all of that needs to be thrown out. And so it's no wonder that in traditional Christian parlance um, and perspective of, of Torah keeping, uh, that the Sabbath is done away with, that kosher is done away with, that uh, the dietary laws, uh, that the, the festivals are all suppressed, all of the uh, things of the Torah that the Christians call the ceremonies, all of those are left behind in pursuit of faith in Christ and walking by the Spirit. Do you understand my perspective? So we got this kind of this um, two-step approach to uh, understanding the book of Galatians from the from the traditional Christian perspective. We got step one in these two steps. Step one is interpretation of Paul's letters, and step two is application of Paul's letters. Step one in the traditional Christian perspective of interpretation is that Paul is combating merit theology in his letter, and that, that, that the Jewish people were trying to keep the Torah to become saved, that the works of law are to be understood literally, that is, workings of the Torah, the commandment keeping, that the Jewish people were trying to be circumcised to be saved, keep the Sabbath to become saved, keep the festivals to become saved, uh, keep uh, kosher to become saved, etc., uh, etc. Et and so Paul has to explain to them that uh, the reason that no one can keep the Torah to become saved is because no one can keep the Torah perfectly. So there's this kind of this straw man that's built up around the Torah that that 
if a person tries to keep Torah perfectly, it's going to backfire because no one can keep the Torah perfectly. And the minute that you fail to keep one part of one commandment of the Torah, you fail to keep all of it. This is according to standard Christian theology. And because we know that no one can keep the Torah perfectly, right, then therefore it becomes useless, futile, worthless, senseless to try to keep any of it. Because we can't keep all of it perfectly, Paul would tell us and warn us that we need to stop trying to keep it at all. And this is kind of the the traditional Christian perspective. Stop trying to keep the Torah to become saved. Just give up on it altogether. Because no one can be justified by the works of law. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. So it is the interpretation of works of the law that kind of fuels this perspective that the Christians hold today, the Christian church today, that when your average Christian observes a Jewish person trying to keep Torah today, they assume, the Christian assumes, that the, tr- the, Christian, that the Jewish person is trying to work their way into heaven, that they're trying to work their way into God's uh, court of justification, that they're trying to earn God's uh, righteousness or gir- earn God's favor by keeping the Torah. And so because that is the, the kind of the favored uh, perspective in Christian uh, circles today, because that's the kind of the, the stereotypical view of Torah observance, then it's no wonder that when your uh, traditional Christian uh, notices that the Torah communities, right, we Jews and Gentiles who do believe in Jesus, when they notice that we are returning to a Hebraic lifestyle of keeping Torah, keeping Sabbath, keeping kosher, wearing tzitzit, putting a mezuzah on our door, walking in the festivals, etc., etc., it's no wonder that the, the traditional church looks at us and says, why are you guys trying to go back under the law? Why are you guys trying to earn your salvation by uh, keeping the works of the law? Why are you trying to work your way into heaven all over again? They, the Christians, feel that we, the Messianics, are trying to are, are trying to earn our way to, to merit theology again. They, the Christians, think that we, the Messianics, are guilty of committing the same legalistic error that the first century Jews and Gentiles were doing in the book of Galatians. You see my point? So the Christians make an application from their interpretation and they apply it kind of um, nonchalantly to we uh, Messianics of today. And nothing could be further from the truth. If you have a well-meaning dialogue with a messianic today, with someone of a Torah community, those Jews and Gentiles who are embracing the Hebraic lifestyle, uh, you're going to find out that we we don't think we're trying to earn our way into heaven. We don't think that the works of law will save us. We don't think that our circumcision, Sabbath, keeping the dietary laws, keeping the festivals, wearing tzitzit, uh, putting a mezuzah on our door, etc., etc., we don't think that those things are trying to save us. Uh, we don't think that they're tr- that they're earning us brownie points for God. So we tell the Christians, we don't keep the Torah to become saved. We keep the Torah because we're saved. And then the Christians kind of go into a, a kind of a, a, a mental breakdown. Eh? You don't think you're keeping the Torah to become saved? Well, what about Paul? What about the book of Galatians? What about the works of the law? Weren't they trying to keep the Torah to become saved? See how it starts from the interpretation of this idea that works of the law is this merit of theology. And really, I think that's probably the wrong foot to start off on. So, so, so that's why I suggest that it, there's probably be a better way to understand uh, Ergo Namu, works of the law. I think it really is a better to understand it as, as this ethnicity-driven salvation. And we're going to see that that position is also wrong. It is a legalistic perspective to think that by being Jewish you're going to be saved, but to think that as a Gentile you can 
earn your salvation by uh, converting to Judaism. We're going to find that that indeed is a, a type of legalism. It is error. It is wrong-headed. It is, in fact, something that Paul would frown upon and disagree with. It's true. But by starting on that from that perspective, it gives uh, the current Messianic movement today a better way to explain the book of Galatians. And, I close with this, a better answer to explain why we're in fact returning to covenant faithfulness even though we don't believe that uh, our Jewishness saves us. So we're going to deal with a little bit more of that uh, next week in, as we uh, turn to week 49. And we're going to start our commentary next week near the top of page 98 with James D.G. Dunn's uh, uh, corollaries where he's talking about this idea of, of uh, works of law and justification in, in, in Paul. But for now, let's close the commentary down. I appreciate everyone's patience. I think we went just a little longer tonight. Um, but uh, I think it was well worth the uh, uh, well worth looking at it. Let's close in prayer. And for those of you who are in the study tonight uh, with me, you're work- welcome to stick around and Skype for, I don't know, another 10, 15 minutes or so. Uh, you can open up your microphone after I close in prayer, and we can just uh, have a nice chat, okay? Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, that you have declared that a man is justified by faith in Christ, that a man is brought into genuine covenant membership, genuine and lasting covenant membership, by the faith and faithfulness of your son, Yeshua. Thank you, Lord, that it is his faithfulness that we can uh, count on, that we can place our, our faith on, that we can place our hope in, that we can know with a certainty that because you recognize that he is the only true righteous person, that we can then place our faith in him, and that as we are found in Messiah, that we are uh, uh, found uh, in a union with him, but not just union with him, that we are found in uh, within him, within his very righteousness, that, that his righteousness has been imputed to us, that has that we have uh, actually taken on the righteousness of Messiah, that we're not just joining in his righteousness, but that we actually uh, have received his righteousness. We know that as you see us, you see him. And we thank you, Lord, that it's by mercy, it's by grace, it is by uh, your extending your love towards us, and that we have accepted this. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us into genuine covenant membership via the uh, uh, um, via the name of our uh, uh, Messiah, Yeshua. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you're also revealing uh, your Torah to us, that you're giving us your words, that you're uh, drawing us back to covenant faithfulness, that you're uh, showcasing um, your uh, truths to us, and you're highlighting to us that, that righteousness is already described in the pages of your word that when Moshe said it will be our righteousness in Deuteronomy 26-25, that it is a righteous lifestyle that Moshe was describing. It's not a. Um, it's not just uh, that God was... Uh, it's not just, Lord, that you were um, uh, showing and revealing that the righteousness is found in Messiah, but that you were also showing that the right lifestyle, sanctification, is only found when we walk in your ways. We cannot do it any other way. Thank you, Lord, that you have preserved your word for us down through the ages, and that it is timeless, and that your words are living, they are breathing, and that they are uh, uh, relevant for us today. They have not lost their sense of meaning. They have not lost their purpose in our lives today. Give us 
strength to continue to strive towards uh, a messianic sympathy towards one another, towards a genuine love for one another, loving our neighbor as ourself, even as we even as we uh, love the Lord our God, uh, even as we embrace the two greatest commandments, love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, give us a sense of a determination to press in, to be lights, to be salt, to be to make a difference. Because indeed the world around us is growing darker and evil is maturing. But we know that you have promised that righteousness will also mature. And that one day there will be a reaping, a harvest, a reckoning. And um, we will see and know and understand that it is only they who walk in the light and the truth of Messiah and keep the commandments of God that will survive this dark and evil day. And so thank you, Lord, that you have given us a steadfast uh, purpose to pursue your truth and to 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 lay hold of the truth of the gospel, to not give up, to be filled with the Spirit, to wear the armor of Ephesians chapter 6, and to not uh, uh, be weak but to not to shrink back, as the book of Hebrews calls it, but to continue to, to press forward in our pursuit of Yeshua as our high priest. Thank you for each and every student that has joined me tonight. I pray that you'll continue to raise them up and to give them the strength and the determination to learn and to study, to do, to study in order to do, in order to teach like the book of Ezra teaches us. Give us a sense of, 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 of knowing that we are your people and that uh, we have this responsibility. Heal us, O Lord, and we will be healed. Bring us back together next week, refreshed and ready to study once again. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory in Yeshua's name. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel... What does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 